Welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith. And in Christmas week, we're with Danish food writer and activist chef Trina Harneman talking about a glorious plant-based uncommercial Hygge Christmas. I have a lot of ornaments that I collected over the years. I don't buy anything anymore, so I use the same again and again, of course. But then I do the little paper stars and I uh, get the, you know, the pine and I do my own kind of decorations. I have things to put it in from last year and so on. And then for me, it's all about the food. Trina is a woman on a mission and the plant-based recipes in her latest book, Scandinavian Green, are a portal into her philosophy on conscious consumption and how to eat to save the planet. But as a cook, food writer and teacher, she says it's important to remember where to start. The first thing I would always say is that food is about deliciousness. Food has to taste good. And we are facing some issues with the way we eat. So therefore, if we have to eat less of something, we have to you know, exchange it with something that is very delicious to be tempted to do that. Because that's the way we are, you know, as a human being, we look for things that's very delicious and that will satisfy us. So therefore, for me, vegetables is that. Because I've always, and is this, this is since I was a little girl, loved vegetables. I always looked for the vegetables and I was not, I've never been a big meat eater. Um, and it's never been, you know, the first thing I thought about when my grandmother would serve the meatballs with the boiled cabbage and the steamed cabbage and the fried cabbage. I would always look so much forward to the cabbage. And, and why is that then, Trina? Do you think it's the kind of the textures or is it the actual sort of richness of the flavours? I think it's both. But I think mo- most of all, it's the flavours. It, it, you know, if you think about vegetables... The flavor combination and, and the flavors out there are endless. We don't even know all of them yet. We know all the flavors of meat. There's nine kinds of meats, you know, and we know basically more or less what they, you know, what they taste like. Yeah. And we can put spices into it and la la la, but we could do the same with the vegetables. So for me, creatively, the vegetables are endless, but I also think they taste so good. They make you feel really good when you eat. You can follow the seasons while you eat them. So there's always something new coming up. Beef is beef. I mean, good quality beef is beef. And I, and I still eat meat. It's not like that. But I just think that it com- when it comes to the joy and the variety and all of that, the vegetables are amazing. Of course, if you can get vegetables as fresh as possible, they become more interesting that way that's also a thing you know a carrot that's six months old is still a six month old (laughs) carrot you know so so you also have that but it's but I just I I don't I get I get high on vegetables I mean right now all these new cabbages coming I mean it's so lovely and tasty and fun to work with and and leafing through your book just looking at the beautiful pictures in your book and the photography is fantastic isn't it yeah Um, thank you you know, you really have got so many different types of vegetables. It's, I think I've seen enough vegetables in, in the many, many, many books that I do for this podcast alone, uh, let alone all the other things that I do. But actually, you've introduced me to new ideas. And, and we'll go through some of those later. I'm really interested in your vegetarian Christmas dinner, um, because I'll do a lot of those myself. Um, celeriac is amazing. But before we do that, um, I do want to talk about the way that you connect uh, food with the the complexities of the way that we live because it's all part of the same thing when we talk about saving the planet it's not just about saving the soils or stopping climate change it is about actually kind of looking at the way that we live as human beings the two things that i want to talk about are the rye bread project that you launched in new york and the work that you do with syrian culture 
I'm fascinated with food and identity and I do lots of stuff on that. Tell me first of all about the rye bread project. What's that got to do with saving the planet or sustainability? First of all, rye is a grain that grows really well in the Northern Hemisphere. It doesn't have the same yield as wheat, but it grows no matter more. You know, it always grows. It's very sustainable in that sense. So you always have rye that comes out of the soil to work with. And rye uh, has a lot of different varieties. And, and it seemed like that in North America, they only had Danko, which is one speed. There's a lot of different ones. So I, we, we, we created a, a project where we got a lot of different rye seeds out of the Nordic Gene Bank to give to farmers in, in um and the Union Square Market and Cornell University was also um, represented by a scholar called Elizabeth Dyke who worked with how to uh, cultivate seeds. So it was part of introducing rye bread, beer made of rye, whiskey made of rye, but, you know, just us, how do we eat these open sandwiches and how do we use the rye bread? Because it's very dense and it's a different kind of bread, so it also feels different when you eat it and you get f- it's much more healthy, you could say. So it was it was a cultural exchange, but also in a in a way to because biodiversity for me is the most important part most important part of this whole climate change uh, you can say activism that I have. Without biodiversity, I mean I could talk about biodiversity even through what's the problem with this virus we have now, with the way we live, with the fires we have all over. The, it, they have all to do with the lack of biodiversity. Well, do that, Trina. I mean, yeah. just before you go on, do yeah. a link, you know, biodiversity with COVID. Tell us about yeah. it. Yeah, because we are, biodiversity is it is decreasing on this planet. Like if you take the COVID, you are, we are deforestation. The deforestation we do to have one crop here and there makes the it's so hard for the animals to live out there. So the animals that get closer and closer to where we live, and then we put them in cages, that's not natural for them. And and all of this way of living, instead of us living more in, you can say, in agreement with nature, um, makes these viruses um, develop and go from animal to humans and, and back and forth and back and forth. And that is a very dangerous thing, and that's why we have this pandemic right now. Yeah. And there's a that it could have been from the pigs that we have thirty millions of in Denmark. It could have been we now we have them in the mink. You know, this is just this is one variety of what can happen. There's a lot of other dangers out there, and yeah. and that is because of that. If we talk about forest deforestation, when you don't have cover crops that keeps the soil and the water in the ground, you get the fires you get. If you go through California and look how the almond trees and the apricot tree stands there and it's just gray underneath the trees, there's no cover crops. They can't even hold on to the water anymore. All of that has to do that we don't want, we, we want it to be easy to farm. It's not easy. And it's, it's a very complex system. Mm. And biodiversity and decrease of that is taking us in the, on the wrong path. We need a lot of animals, a lot of plants and a lot of different ways of eating and living so we need diversity in everything and most of all in nature yeah i'm i'm totally 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 with you and that's why it's interesting to talk to you about your vegetable book um some of my favorite chefs and food writers have written amazing vegetable books this year but they're not vegetarians and it is important isn't it to get that balance right for you what is the balance between meat eating and uh, a plant-based diet for me i try to have a scheme called 
2080. And that means that 80% of what I eat should come from plants and 20% should come from animals. And that's including cheese and milk. And if you look at it in that way, and then I say, okay, in a week, if I eat um, so many calories or so many grams of food, I'm trying to think about how do I, what do I eat from the animals? And since I love a flat white I my, and I love cheese, I would, I eat more of that than I eat meat. I, I don't eat meat um, a lot. Um, and sometimes I eat it more for lunch on a, you know, I have a bit of a, a chicken salad on my rye bread or, or something like that. Or I have chicken stock. I made a risotto last night with chicken stock, so that would be part of my twenty. But of course, it it it's not it's not a scheme that I follow a hundred percent. But it is in my, you know, it is something that I think about. And then, of course, I love eggs. So and I love cakes. So I use a lot of eggs. So some of my my twenty percent has to be there. But I think it's I think it's a good way to be aware of how how do I choose. Uh, my ration, if you can say it like that. Of, yeah, I suppose of the... it's, it's conscious consumption, yes. isn't it? Yeah. It's, a, it's yeah. about thinking about it. And, and I think, I wonder if your work with young Syrians in Denmark to spread the joy of Syrian food has to do with that as well. I, I do a lot about identity uh, and food. And I wonder if it's the hubris of the Western world compared with the diaspora who've taken their food with them as identity that isn't so full of uh, domination and uh, and all the errors that humans have made around food. Yes, I think identity in food is very important and that's also why changing the meat eating is so difficult because this is, you know, how it's been for the last 60, 70 years, but it wasn't like that before the Second World War. So in a sense, you could say in, in our culture, but in the Syrian culture, meat does also, you know, that's also a culture where meat plays a huge role, but they have a lot of other things that they eat. When I, I would say, I actually think when I, I also work with um, other ethnic communities in Denmark around food and, and, um, and, the, and it's actually more difficult to change the, the climate things into it in in their sense because they because of them you know being in a new country, their way of eating and cooking to them is so important because this is one of the last things they have to hold on to that's part of their culture. But then you could say again what we what I really learned especially from the Syrian women that I worked with is that they don't have any food waste because they still even when in Syria even though they were not poor or anything like that they still have a culture where food has value. So therefore, when food has value, you don't waste it. So, And you also have uh, still the old-fashioned recipes like our grandmother used to be where the, the minced meat that goes into um, you know, the, the dish is maybe 300 grams where we have been used to using 500 and 600 grams because the, the, the amount of meat has gone up in the recipes we've been doing for the for last 30 years. So you can say they have a much con- more conscious uh, idea of what the value, the, the value of the food apart from the cultural value. Yeah, so there is cultural and there's economic value and perhaps yeah. that's the, yeah. the consciousness that, that we've lost. Let's go into your food moments to see how that works. And the first one you've chosen is the carrot fritter um, yeah. because it is about economic value of food. It's first of all, 
they're really delicious. And they are, if I, if I have to, I've, I've done, you know, some more, you could say cheeky fun things about, you know, men who are heavy meat eaters. How do we, how do we, how do we get them to even be interested? The carrot fritters will do it because they are deep fried and everything deep fried you can get, you know, people will eat that. And then they have a lot of flavor because I put spices into them, whatever people's um, is. But on that other hand, on, on the, you know, they're also very cheap because carrots are cheap food. I mean, it's not to buy a book. You can buy a bag of carrots and a few other things uh, and an onion. And then you can make these if you have oil and they will fill it, you know. So I'm also I'm very conscious of people who say, oh, but vegetables are so expensive. And uh, yeah, that's a fancy ones. You can make a lot of food out of carrots and onions and, you know, celeriac, and that's not, that's inexpensive, you know? Yeah. So for me, it's very important to also look at that, to, you know, these counter arguments, I have to be ready, you know? (laughs) Uh, So they are for me, because this is one of the things that I think, apart from food, have to be sustainable, and we have to um, look at the whole holistic system around food. Food also have to be democratic. Yeah, everybody has a right to a good meal, and I find that is a very important part of it. So first of all, they're comfort food, big flavors, and everybody can make them. And there's always carrot to buy year round. So these are like the, yeah, they are for me an easy go to recipe that you can do whatever season it is. Yeah, I mean it's interesting, isn't it? Because I do a lot of work with uh, food poverty for the Right to Food podcast for the Food Foundation, and it's a subject that I can't talk to a lot of. I can talk to the Syrians about, interestingly, I can't talk to people who are actually living in food poverty about delicious recipes. I couldn't talk to them about using, you know, chopped tarragon leaves and coriander seeds um, because it feels, in Britain anyway, it feels uh, like. Uh, there are two conversations one's for the 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 food secure and one is for the food insecure and the food insecure is about grinding poverty and getting through the day you can't talk about climate change how would you sell carrot fritters to people because it's really easy um, yeah. and of course once you've got your 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 turmeric and your your coriander seeds in your cupboard then it's easy enough to use those they last a long time is that the same kind of conversation in denmark yeah, yeah it is but we don't have the same inequality in denmark as you have in uk that's not to say we don't have it of course we do but the but the the gap is not as big and and so therefore our problem is is not a class problem our problem is people don't take the time and the effort and don't think it's important enough. For them, it's always talking about, oh, I don't have time. So in that sense, it's a different is- issue. But I'm, I would always say it is about education, 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 and being inspired. Um, because, and I understand completely not feeling you have the resources, but you could also make the carrot fritters without the spices. They would mm-hmm. still taste really good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If you don't have them, or you could you could use your uh, curry powder, which a lot of household has anyway, or a bit of chili flakes instead, because you have them for something else, because they become more common to 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 use. But I don't, I, I I think, and I'm gonna sound I'm gonna sound controversial now. I think it's really really um, problematic that every time we talk about food and climate change, somebody throws in that about people who don't have enough money. 
There is so many issues in this world where we don't use that as an argument and we're not helping these people anyway. So why are we using it now not to make the, the way we eat greener? That is because talking about the way we eat is so difficult because it's emotionally linked and it has a lot of shame to it. It's shameful not to be, it's shameful not to have enough money to buy food. There's so many other issues in this conversation that has to, that just shows us how unfair and unequal the world we live in. And that, and we have to talk about that. And for me, food is a very good, but I don't think we should shy away from it. I just think we should go right in there and say, okay, but how can I help this community to, you know, live better? Yeah, and, and and going back to what your work with the Syrian refugees, uh, these are some of the poorest people in the world, n- haven't necessarily come from poor backgrounds, mostly not, but they come with nothing and the food is where you start. Uh, your friend Carolyn Steele uh, has yeah. written the most amazing book called Zootopia and she talks about putting food right at the heart of economics in a total reboot of the food system. Yes. That's what we need, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we need to, because you are, you can also just go to somebody who's not at war and is not as destitute as the Syrians are, the Italians. The mm. Italians do not have a food system. You know, anybody who have uh, economic problems, you know, they can, they can um, you know, make a, a, a spaghetti pomodoro for nothing. You know what I mean? And Absolutely. they will eat that. And I, I remember when the COVID was at their height in Italy and there was a news team from Denmark that went down to the south and they visited some Italian families that had lost their jobs, both of them. They did not have any money to, for food for their family. And they were dependent on, uh, a, a, you know, a bag of food that came every third day. And the food that was in that bag tells you everything about the culture, you know. Yeah. It was not there was whole tomatoes. There were things that are generally not even seen in a bag of food in Denmark. Yeah. So in that sense, a cultural thing is we we are also in this problem because the the people who have the least money is always worst off because but because our food culture is not that strong, the food that we will pre- present in that situation is even worse than it would be a place where the food culture is stronger. Exactly, exactly. Your second food moment is soup. And you put one in for each season. It is obviously the easiest, the cheapest food in the world. Uh, Tell us why you chose that second food moment. I love soup. (laughs) I really do love soup. And I love soup and bread. Um, And and again, economically, a vegetable soup and a home-baked bread is is something you can do for a few pounds, you know. So and there and and it and it lasts a long way and it also keeps you full in a very comforting way, and then again the food waste, you know what I do often is I when people say oh this soup is amazing can you give me the recipe and I can't because I opened up my vegetable drawer and I looked down and there was a very boring onion and a carrot that was a little bit too old, and the cabbage had gone you know very soft and boring at the same time. And I just take all of this and I, you know, saute it some, with some oil and butter and I have my own, you know, I put some vegetable stock into it that I make and and then I either blend it or eat it, you know, finely chopped and put spices into it. And then the next day there's leftovers and I eat it again. It's the oldest recipe yeah. in the world and yes. the most nutritious. Absolutely. Yes. Your third food moment is cinnamon bread, a childhood memory for you. Tell us about the cinnamon bread that you make and why. It's so comforting. Yeah, I mean, we, we always have to mention Hugo, right? And, uh, you know, I come 
you know, the Scandinavian countries, uh, there's been a lot of focus on us lately because we have, we are we're very good at coping with winter. And the reason why we're so good at it is because we're very good at being inside and being at home and have our hygge moments, which is all about, you know, lighting the candles, making tea or coffee and eat something soft and comfortable, comforting. And that is for me, the cinnamon bread. Uh, it's it's just a 100% wheat dough. And then you make this, what we call a ramonks, which is like sugar, butter and cinnamon. And then you put it inside, you know, you roll the bread out flat, then you put it inside, you roll it up and then you bake it and then you eat it with a, some butter when it's still, you know, lukewarm. Yeah. And I can eat a whole one. And that's <laughs> the only problem. If I bake it, I need to have guests over because otherwise I eat the whole one. And And it's just that thing. That makes you enjoy life and enjoy you know, the smell of your house. It's it's not that difficult to do. Yeah. And and for me, you know, I mentioned before, everybody says, but I don't have time. I just always want to emphasize when we talk about food, everybody has time. We have all 24 hours a day in the life that we lead. Yeah. So it's about choosing. And if you don't choose to spend some hours every day and, you know, to get real good food into your life, it's your choice. Everybody can do that if they want. You can, you know, and I always say to people, oh, but how do I get to live more healthy and cook at home? You make a plan. You sit down on Sunday with your family or with yourself and you make a plan about how do I want to eat the next week and then you shop for it. So And then you, you know, go through the meals. And if you think, you know, doing these vegetables or baking a bread, you know, make a plan, prepare it. You can make a dough that lasts for three days. You can take something out and bake every day. You can, you know, you can you can rinse all the cabbage. You can uh, peel the vegetables, put them in buckets so they will last. And then you have to take out a little every day and during the week and cook from it. And while you do that, you can actually watch a movie on Netflix on your kitchen table, you know, <laughs> if, <laughs> if it's, you it's about that, if it's if it's about that, you know. Yeah. So so I so for me, I, I, I think it's very, very if you want to have food in your life make the decision to take the time totally and that's to do with the conscious consumption again yes. that's the answer and changing the national conversation stop talking about time poverty and oh, yeah. make some choices let's talk about christmas your fourth yeah. food moment is all about a hygge danish christmas full of yeah. vegetables beautiful jeweled food on the table absolutely beautiful to look at uh, the celeriac is making. I'm. I'm just looking at it now. It's. It's not the prettiest of food, but you've made it pretty. What have you put on there? <laughs> what's uh, the What's I'm, the red? The red is sorrel. Sorrel. That's beautiful, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Sorrel. So sorrel pretty. grows. If you have a little pot of sorrel in your kitchen counter, it keeps growing. It keeps. It's all there all year round, and it has that acidic little taste. And then yeah. the back of it is red, so it's always pretty to put on. Yeah. So I bake. I may I boil some of the celeriac and then I make a puree of it uh, where you can put olive oil. You can also use butter. You can use cream. You can use you know whatever you like. And then some nutmeg because nutmeg is for me also a Christmas vegetable. But nutmeg is like bay leaves. It can take most dishes and just with a little bit just lift the flavor, which yeah. is amazing, especially with the celeriac because celeriac is both sweet and earthy. And it has a lot of umami in it, so it's also very satisfying to eat. And then some of the the baked um, celeriac, I cut up in pieces and I serve on top. And then I sprinkle it with salt and pepper and, and thyme and sorrel. 
Yeah. I mean, celeriac is just a wonderful vegetable. Um, oh, yeah. it, as you've done it in so many different ways, it is very Christmassy in itself. Yotamata um, Lengi and Easter Bilfrage in their latest book, Flavour, do the most amazing. They talk a lot about the science of, of cooking, but they do a three hour roasted celeriac, which just with literally nothing. And I thought, I'm going to try this. And yeah, this, yeah. it is the caramelization of that roasting of the of the celeriac yeah, that absolutely transforms it and that's what you've done with this one haven't you you've yeah yeah the whole baked celeriac i have in three other cookbooks so i didn't put it in, in this one because i thought it's already i've done it so many times because it's a very big part of the danish uh, culture yeah. we've you know celeriac has always been a very popular here um yes what you do is the longer you cook it stable in a stable way or bake it like that the more water will evaporate and the more intense the flavor will be yeah it's it's an absolute winner for christmas yeah now you're in your hygge household you make your own christmas ornaments you really go to town don't you yeah but it's the opposite of commercialization isn't it and let's talk about that within your framework within your philosophy of kind of you know being comfortable and and having the things around you that provide great pleasure tell us about how to do christmas trina hahnemann style i mean I think there's paradoxes in life, and I really love um, Christmas. But I have I have a lot of ornaments that I collected over the years. I don't buy anything anymore, so I use the same again and again, of course. But then I do the little paper stars, and I uh, get the you know the pine, and I do my own kind of decorations. I have things to put it in from last year, and so on. And then for me, it's all about the food. I do the Christmas cooking, the Christmas pudding, um, and and I. And then I lead up, I do my own care, my own cabbage. I pickle a lot of things for Christmas Eve. And then I spend three days up to the 24th cooking the meal. And in our family, it's a dinner. It's all about the dinner. We do have presents. If you like to give presents to somebody, please do. If you don't have any money and you don't re- are really in, not into it, don't buy any presents. And if you don't have something special you don't want to give a person, and you just have to think of something, and you buy that art sweater you don't really want to give, please don't buy any presents. This is the rule in our family. But, you know, if you've been thinking of something for a long time, you would love to give to your children or whatever. They're all grown-ups now. They're not children anymore. That's how the rules are. And I can always think of something, but there's lots of Christmases where I don't get a lot of presents because I have so many things, you know. But then there's a book that's obvious that I would love to have. That's You know, things like that. So I think it should be conscious and it should be full of love. That's why it shouldn't be a duty. So in that sense. And then... I cook a really big meal on the 24th and then the 25th and the 26th, we don't, I don't do anything. I stay in my pajamas. And uh, right now we have a, because of the crown, my daughter who lives in London, she comes home and we sit on the 25th, which is our uh, Christmas day where, where it's a bit different in Denmark. And we eat leftovers all day and we watch 10 hours of the crown. And then the day after (laughs) we go for a really long walk because we need to move a little. (laughs) And then we eat more leftovers. (laughs) And uh, but for me, Christmas is about the food and the celebration. But it's it's not about I'm not religious, so I don't celebrate in that sense. But for me, it's such important ritual because I don't think I would understand time if I didn't have rituals. You know, the Christmas tells me the year's ending. Another year has passed. I think about what happens. 
I normally cry a little while I cook and have a glass of champagne and I like that. It's like me processing the year and the year to come and what's going on in my life. And and when people are attacking, well, you know, you know, people saying, oh, why are you celebrating somebody you don't believe in? Not necessarily. I, that's not the right angle for me. The angle is there's a historical belief that I that I like to celebrate in a way without the religious part of it because I'm not, but I respect the people who have that. But the ritual of understanding what time is, is it, it just makes sense to me. Yeah. It's a wonderful way of looking at life. I yeah. think it's about actually engaging again and yeah, yeah. waking up and smelling the coffee and understanding <laughs> where the coffee <laughs> yeah. came from and all the people yeah. who picked it yes. and its impact on the world. Um, but, but it's full of joy and full of flavour and taste and deliciousness. It's, a, yeah. it's It is about coming to. It's wonderful you don't really go on about it. I mean, we've talked about it from that perspective just because I'm fascinated by that and I know that that's where you come from. But it's your read is light and flavoursome and delicious and it's full of ideas and really practical. Um, it's, it is the way to go in these ways it, as we tackle these climate emergencies. Practical advice and great recipes is a way to do it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think I I think so. I think it's um temptation. You know, there's nothing better than temptation to make people change their ways, you know, to 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 see that this could be this could be in a, you know, you know, a way for me to to you know, take another choice, not necessarily like this, oh, I can't eat meat, but actually because this this is very delicious and I always think it's we the identity with food is strong, but I also think the whole idea of, you know, even there's a cessus in the cover to tell people what this book is about, but I really dislike the word vegetarian. I really do not like it because I don't understand why we have to call in the Northern Hemisphere. Why do we have to call a meal something different just yeah. because it doesn't have meat? Yeah. And we can just again go to the Italian food culture. When you go, you know, there's not going to be a, a family member calling for the family, say, oh, we're going to have dinner. It's vegetarian. Please come, <laughs> you know, and lots of meals in in. In Italy is vegetarian. Yeah. Nobody talks about it. They just eat, you know, and everybody say, oh, men can't live without meat. And I'm like, I mean, they're pretty macho down there in Italy. And they, they you know, they they don't seem a problem would have spaghetti pomodoro and some cheese and, and a bit of fruit. And that was lunch or dinner, you know. Exactly. So so I think we should have to look at the food. And and another really big thing we also have to, to issue now, you mentioned, you know, Yotam and his books are full of it. You know, just recipe, you know, make two salads, serve with bread. Why, this thing that we have, the meat and then the vegetables and the potatoes, this free element way of eating, we have yeah. to get, you know, get rid of that. You meat know, think about veg. It's so yes, last year. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what do I? Yeah, I would really like to have a cabbage salad. OK, then eat a huge portion of cabbage salad for dinner. Yeah, that's fine. You know, it doesn't have to have all these, you know, other combinations. Yeah. It's a failure of the imagination if we're not eating a much more varied plant-based diet. Yeah. Trina, it's it's uh, very, very exciting to talk to you about all these ideas. Thank you so much. And um, have a wonderful Christmas. Uh, are you. you going to be doing a completely vegetarian Christmas? No, I'm not. No, we will have duck and we also have a bit of pork and then we'll have lots of these side dishes. But the vegetables pay, play a really big role because the dog and the pork would not taste the same if they don't come with all these beautiful vegetable dishes. Yeah, it's a 
a celebration, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the the eighty twenty or the twenty eighty. Uh, that's when you really decide what you're going to put on your on your table, and it's a tradition and it's a ritual, and there's a really important place for these traditions on your Christmas table. Have a wonderful day, and Thank you. Uh, I look forward to the next book. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. You can buy Trina's Scandinavian Green and all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at julysmith.com. And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter for loads more stuff happening in the new year. Next week, I'm with Trina's friend, the food philosopher and architect, Carolyn Steele, whose book, Sitopia, is my book of the year for its utopian vision of how food could save the world and fundamentally change the way we live. Have a very happy Christmas. Thank you.